morning to Revelation chapter 12 as we consider the final installment to our series that we've been working through uh, since, well, I think, yeah, June 1st. Revelation 12, we'll be looking in just a few moments, reading uh, verses 14 through the end of the chapter. Now, tomorrow morning, my family and I, we're going to begin our journey back to North Carolina. It's the place that Jennifer and I often, or have for a long time, referred to as, as home. So Jennifer was born and raised there her entire life until we moved to New Orleans and From the time I was three, I was raised there as well. And so we've spent most of our lives there. And in addition to that, we've spent uh, the entirety of our married life up to two years ago, as well as our complete ministry life uh, in North Carolina as well. So for numerous reasons, we will probably always think of Winston-Salem, North Carolina as home, no matter where the Lord may lead us in the days ahead. Every one of us, I think, has that kind of place. Whether it's here in New Orleans or whether it's somewhere else, it's the kind of place that you just think of as home. Maybe even now as I say that, you're reflecting on that. But but when we talk about that place, that place we like to call home, it's much more, isn't it, than just a mere geographical location. It's not just about that that place in the United States or or wherever that may be, there, there's also this attachment along with thoughts of, that, of these emotions that are, elay, are, are aroused within us when we think of that place we call home. We find ourselves at times just pondering upon that place and longing to return there, if maybe even just for a short period. You see, because there's, there's often relationships and, and other things of nostalgic, uh, reminiscent qualities that that are intertwined with that place that we call home. And and for all these reasons, and I'm sure many more, when I think about going home, there's a bit of excitement to reconnect with with all those ideas that come together to make up the place that we call home. It's for this very same reason that Christians throughout the years have spoken of leaving this present world with all its difficulties and all its suffering as going home. Even the Bible speaks of us being mere sojourners and strangers walking in this world. You can probably even think at this moment there have been many, many songs over the years that have been written about this very idea. When I was thinking about this, the one that happened to come to my mind was a very old Southern Gospel hymn. You may know it. It goes something like, This world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door. And I can't feel at home in this world anymore. You have to forgive some of the emotion. As followers of Christ, we're not supposed to feel at home in this world. The Bible teaches us that God has placed eternity within our hearts. And we long 
We desperately desire for something beyond the sin-infected world. Give me just a second. Try as we may, we can't even begin to really imagine what it would be like to live in an existence that, that, that isn't affected by what sin has done by its entrance into this, this world. We don't know what that would be like, but something within us continually reminds us that going home will somehow be something glorious. Because if we believe the word of God... We know that one day all those who truly follow Christ will experience a, a perfect existence or, or the life that God created in the beginning as it was supposed to be before sin ever entered. We know that one day we will forever be God's people, forever living in God's perfect place and forever enjoying God's rule and His blessing. The other day... Aubrey and I went to the store to purchase some packing supplies. And while we were there, the woman on, uh, who was checking us out, she was asking us, where are you moving to? And, and I said, well, we're going back to North Carolina. And, and, and the conversation went on and she began to tell me about how New Orleans has always been her home and she loves New Orleans. And, but then she, she added to that that she, she used to imagine one day living in that, you know, that utopian-like place. But... Eventually, she came to the realization that that utopian-like place just didn't exist. And so, when Aubrey and I walked out the door, I suddenly realized the opportunity, opportunity that I had missed in that conversation. Because while I understood exactly what that woman was saying, she was completely wrong. Completely wrong. Because that place does exist, or at least one day in all its fullness when the kingdom of God is fully consummated. Over the last nine weeks, we have been tracing the kingdom of God throughout the storyline of the scriptures. God's kingdom, has, or God's kingdom has been God's pursuit and God's passion from the very beginning. He created His kingdom in perfection for His people, Adam and Eve. And... They, unfortunately, however, chose to pursue a kingdom of their own making after being deceived by the serpent. And at that point, we understand from the scriptures, that's when God's kingdom collapsed in this, uh, in this world and sin began its reign as we experience it even today. And ever since that time, God has been, been pursuing a people for himself to lead them to a place of his perfect provision so that they could enjoy his rule and his blessing forever. But everything that we, was experienced and everything that we read about written in the Old Testament was merely a shadow of what was to come. All those stories, while they were, are true and they were a part of God's unfolding plan, they were but a shadow pointing to something much more glorious. And when the word became flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, God's kingdom was brought near. That kingdom was inaugurated, but it was not yet fully completed. You see, we presently live in, in, in the period that the Bible calls the last days. They're called the last days for the express reason that the very next thing to come is God's kingdom in all his fullness. And that is why Jesus himself taught his disciples to pray that way. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. 
Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so, in our experience, we presently live between two worlds. The kingdom of God came and in power in the per- person of Jesus Christ as he was the very fulfillment of everything promised throughout the Old Testament. He was, as the New Testament tells us, God's yes. You could go back in Old Testament and think, well, I wonder what, how this promise of God would work out. Jesus was the fulfillment. We've seen that over the last several weeks. But we still yet await the kingdom to come and, and to be completed in its full establishment here on this very earth that God created for that purpose. And just like all the other promises that God made, it will surely come because God has purposed it. So though we presently live in the kingdom of this world, which the Bible also calls this present evil age, we wait patiently. We wait eagerly, desirously, longing with great confidence for the kingdom to one day finally and fully be consummated. As we turn our attention this morning to the kingdom of God consummated, which simply means to come in all its fullness, I want us to consider the fulfillment of our greatest need and deepest desires by looking at a text found in Revelation chapter 11. And I go back to that because if you will recall, if you were here, our very first message was about what... What do you desire more than anything else? That was a question we posed to you even at times throughout this series. And so I want us to to come to, to, to bring that to conclusion as we look at the fulfillment of our greatest need and our deepest desires from this particular text. Now, the book of Revelation tells us the story of life between these two worlds. It unfolds the drama of the kingdom of this world as it is victoriously overcome by the kingdom of God. And now, while the book of Revelation is often a difficult book to digest, it unveils for us the struggle that exists for the believer who has eternity set in their hearts, but yet lives in the midst of a sin-infected world. Its overall message, we read from the very beginning, is to the one who overcomes, to the one who is the conqueror. In fact, the Apostle John introduces himself in the beginning as your brother and partner in tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. In short, John reveals that those who follow the Lamb wherever he goes would experience tribulation in this world as a direct result of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the climax of the book at the end reveals that Christ in all his glory will, in fact, fully and finally conquer the kingdom of of this world, which is referred to as Babylon, that great city, and, and that Christ would make all things as they should be. Christ will vindicate the righteous, and he will condemn the wicked for all eternity. So in Revelation 11, we read the, this summary overview of this reality. And while living in this present age, the last days, the church stands... As the express witness to Jesus Christ our Lord. Now this witness to Christ will result in persecution. But in the end, through apparent death and defeat, the church will rise victorious. Not unlike the Savior whom we serve. So Revelation 11.14 introduces what John terms as the third woe. 
It's at the seventh trumpet blast. Two very different things take place. This final trumpet blast is, is con- considered a woe. It tells us in verse 14, the second woe is past. Behold, the third is soon to come. It's considered a woe, which is merely a, a dreaded thing, something that you're not going to look forward to. It is, it is called this for the, for the very reason that those who persist in unrepentance will no longer have an opportunity to repent. Their just condemnation will be final. It'll be set. No turning back. But at the same time, this very same thing we read about here, for the Christian, for the one who believes, the one who follows Christ, the perspective is completely different. So in this very same act, this very same thing we read about in these few verses in chapter 11... We find ultimate vindication for the righteous and ultimate condemnation for the unrepentant. Verses 15 through 19 provide us with a glimpse into what is called the consummation of the kingdom. So let's read together, beginning in verse 14 through the end of the chapter. John writes, the second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying... The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple, and there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Father, we do pray this morning that you would stir our hearts. Give us a passion for your word. Give us a passion to know you. We pray that you would bring upon our hearts conviction of our sin. Give us grace to to be led to repentance. We pray for those who may be here this morning who have never repented of their sin, who still stand underneath the, the righteous wrath of our great God, that you would open their eyes and their ears and their hearts to the glorious truth of the gospel and that you would so impassion them to run to the cross and give themselves over to you. And for those of us who who sit here this morning and stand here who, who can be identified as those who follow the Lamb wherever He goes, believers trusting in the Lord, However imperfect we are, I pray, Lord, that you would do something within us even by your word this morning, by the power of your spirit, as you have promised you would. Your word teaches us that your very word never returns void, but it it accomplishes every single thing that it is sent out for. So we know and we can pray confidently this morning, Lord, that your perfect will will be done in this place today. And so God... We invite you to have your way in our hearts, in our minds. Illuminate us that we might see glorious things, that we 
would not otherwise be able to see. And may it all renown to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Up to this point, through this series, the definition that I have given you over the kingdom of God is, God's kingdom is God's people in God's place, enjoying God's rule and blessing. Now, while that definition hasn't changed, we're going to approach that definition in a little bit of a different order this morning, simply because the text that I've chosen for this morning presents it in a different order. And so this morning, we we are going to look at, number one, God's perfected place. Number two, God's perfected rule. And then finally, God's perfected people. At the sounding of the seventh trumpet, in the final trumpet blast, John records that there are a, vo- a multitude of voices saying or declaring the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Simply stated, God's perfected place or his ultimate purpose in preparing a place for his people is still found in this world. God's place isn't somewhere out there. It's not some abstract idea it's not on cloud nine it isn't what we often assume it to be when we consider what we call the home going of our loved ones you see that's not quite it because when we think about that that's temporary that's incomplete you see god's place is no different than the very place that it that it was from the very beginning when god created all things he saw it he said it was good it it cannot be improved upon And God himself is not going to improve upon it. That's exactly what it's going to be. He didn't change his plan somewhere along the way because things happened that were beyond his control. The world is God's perfect place. Not in this present state, but in its final renewed and redeemed state. God will redeem this world which he created to start with for his people. And in the final consummation, he'll redeem redeem this world and once again prepare it to be the perfect provision for his people. Only this time, this time, there will no longer be any chance for sin to undo it. Ever again. It will be forever God's place. In our efforts to find comfort in the face of the experience of death, we... We sometimes skew the reality that the Bible unveils to us about eternity. You see, while it is true, uh, what we say, what comes from the Bible, we say to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And that is absolutely true. And that death for the Christian brings ultimate healing and deliverance from the effects of sin. That is absolutely true. But understand that that's what we often call the intermediate state. It's temporary. It's not our ultimate destination. It's not the believer's ultimate goal because it wasn't God's. God's design went beyond that. Presence with the Lord is to be desired for sure. It would be glorious. But God did not create us to live forever as mere spirits or mere souls floating around somewhere out there as, again, we often picture it in our minds. He created us As human beings. And you remember the story, right? When he created us as human beings, what did he say? And it was very good. 
Right? The pinnacle of creation. Everything else is good. Here, this is very good. This was God's goal. To create human beings, not spirits. We're not going to be angels. We're not going to be floating around. We're humans. And that's something glorious. In fact, I'll go ahead and say this. I'll add this. Every time, and I know we, we, we make these statements and we mean well when we say them. As a matter of fact, I read one the other day uh, from someone back home uh, who posted that, that God's gained an angel. And I think, why would we want to reduce our existence to being angels? We're much greater than the angels. Read the book of Hebrews. So when we consider someone being an angel, I understand the sentiment that we think of. But don't reduce God's glorious creation in human beings to something much less than God ever intended it to be. We will not be angels. We will be human beings. God's perfect creation forever. It's an intermediate, intermediate state that, that's, that's waiting for something much greater. That's why in Christ's ultimate victory, or that's why Christ's ultimate victory over death, sin, and the grave was his resurrection. He was raised bodily. His body was raised, incorruptible. And in the same manner, the Bible teaches us that one day when Christ brings his kingdom in its fullness, the bodies of all believers who have died will be reunited with their spirits. And those who are alive and remain will be transformed. The, the mortal will take on immortality. The corrupt will take on incorruption. And then will come about the saying, Death, where is your sting? Now, while our bodies will no longer be susceptible to sin, they will not cease to be bodies. This is, this is the reason, if you were to flip back a couple chapters and read in Revelation 6, John gets the glimpse of some souls in heaven under the altar. These are disembodied souls that were killed because of their testimony to the word of God. And, and they're, they're not going, man, this is great. Read it, Revelation 6. They're going, how long, O Lord? How long? There's something they're waiting for. And what they're waiting for is what God has planned. And that is the fullness of all things. So, in this present age, God's purpose and God's glorious plan is yet complete. Oh, it's still glorious. But it's not done. So, our passionate pursuit should be the same as God's. The kingdom of this world becoming the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Now, Revelation 21 and 22 goes on to further describe in, in, in wonderful imagery drawn from, from out throughout the Old Testament of God's perfected place for his people. It's a place that's described as both a, a holy city. It's described as a temple, much like that you read about in, by the prophet Ezekiel. If you've ever tried to weave through Ezekiel 40 to the end. The symbolism is glorious and it seeks to, to arouse within us the emotions and passions to pursue with all that we are, God's perfect place, His kingdom come. Now we experience the reality of sin in this world every day. Almost every moment of every day in some way. And as believers in the Lord, we face disappointment, grief, pain, suffering, and much more. Sometimes we face that simply because it's the common experience of humankind in this life. It has nothing to do with anything except for we live in a sinful world. But at other times, we, we face those things as a direct result of our testimony, our witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And this is what we are to expect in this present worldly kingdom. But we're not supposed to succumb to it. We're not supposed to be deceived by it. We're not supposed to be ruled by it. We are to passionately pursue God's kingdom come in all its fullness. We are supposed to stand apart from the world rather than to buy into its lies, to buy into its deceits and its attractiveness. We, the church, are to renounce this world in all its ways and pursue with a single passion God's kingdom come. Paul declares in Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Stop thinking like the world. Think like God's word. Allow his word to change the way you see things and what drives you. John declares in 1 John chapter 2, do not love the world, neither the things that are in this world. But understand that if we do dare to stand apart from the glory of God, you can expect trouble. Paul states in 2 Timothy chapter 3, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There's no exception there. All who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. Been persecuted recently? All who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. That's our existence in this world for the sake of the gospel. The world will not understand. We can't give them enough information. We can't say it just the right way. And they'll go, oh, well, I didn't, I never heard it like that before. So we've been wrong all this time. They will not understand. And in fact, they will seek, they're they're going to be offended and they're going to seek to discredit or silence us. And, And here's the Here's the concerning factor. The more that the church becomes like the world, the more the church will be offended by those who seek to count the cost and truly take up the cross and stand for the gospel of Jesus Christ no matter what. So think about this with me. Do you pursue this temporary life in this world more than you do the glory of God and His kingdom come? What do you think about more? What do you spend more time pursuing? Are you more driven by the standards and view of our present age than you are by the the radical claims of the gospel? Are are you more passionate about the kingdom of this world and, and, and the joys that you might experience here or the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ? And take note, mere words are not enough. Not only does the consummated kingdom include God's perfected place, but also God's perfected rule. John goes on to describe this this coming kingdom in chapter 11 by saying, And he shall reign forever and ever. Now, while as believers we recognize that Christ is indeed Lord of all, even at this very moment, the reality of his rule will become one day comprehensive and universal and will remain that way forever. And in the day that God brings his kingdom in all his fullness, when he consummates that kingdom, the whole world will know that Christ is Lord, even those who refuse to submit to his rule. You may think of the verse, uh, and every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians chapter 2. The result 
of those who refuse to submit to him and repent of sin, the result for them will be dread and condemnation when this kingdom comes. In fact, I refer you back again to Revelation chapter 6. It gives us another perspective on this reality. Beginning in verse 15, it reads, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks and the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand? Now, notice in those words the recognition of God's awesome power. I mean, these are people who, who are saying, they're seeing that God sit upon his throne and, his, and, and the lamb and they're saying, who can stand the, 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 the awesomeness of this? But yet, rather than pursue him in passion and repentance, what do they do? They hide from him, they seek separation rather than reconciliation. But nevertheless, God will receive all the glory due his great name, even through the condemnation of the wicked. Now, in response, as we read this portion of Scripture, we, we find that there are 24 elders who fall on their faces and worship. Now, these 24 elders are, are most likely a symbolic, uh, a, symbol, a symbolic of God's people from throughout all times. Twelve tribes representing the faithful from the Old Testament. Twelve apostles repre- representing the faithful from the New Testament, making up the 24 elders. But regardless of who they represent, take note of what they declare. First... They acknowledge God as the one who is all-powerful. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty. There's none like you. There's none other. He is is, is all-powerful. He stands above anything else. There's no competition. They acknowledge that. But second, they acknowledge him as the one who is and who was. Now... That's a little phrase easily to fly right by, but it might not seem all that significant. But if you go back and read the previous 10 chapters, you'll find this phrase or a similar phrase repeated several times. Only in the previous occurrences of this phrase, there's an added statement to it. And for an example, you can look at Revelation 1 verse 8 or Revelation 4 verse 8. But here's what it says. It says, the one who is and was and is to come. If you look back at 11, verse 17, you find that something's missing. What's missing is, is to come. Why? Because at this point that's represented here in, in this declaration, he is no longer is to come. He's here. The kingdom has arrived. The kingdom is here. But more importantly, the king of the kingdom is here. And so these elders fall on their faces, celebrate the consummation of God's kingdom to never look back to a sin-infected world again. And John goes on to record that these, these elders declared, you have taken your power and begun to reign. They, they see it as already a past tense event. It's happened. The rule and reign of Christ will be universal and comprehensive. No matter what it might look like today in our world, today in our culture, it will be. There will no longer be any part of creation, humankind included, that will not recognize Christ as the king over all. God's perfect rule is sure to come in all its fullness. There will be no longer any choosing to live life any other way than to enjoy God's rule and his blessing. 
in a previous message in this series when I spoke on God's kingdom communicated, which covered Genesis 12 through Deuteronomy, I pointed out that God's rule over our lives is not an option. You see, we, we try to, to justify our right to make our own rules by declaring that we no longer live under law but under grace. It's a quote from Scripture. We're no longer under law but under grace. But that statement is true, absolutely true. If understood properly, it reminds us that we're no longer under the curse of the law because of grace. It does not mean that we don't have to live according to God's ways, which in our terms... We might define as rules or law. If we do not delight in the law of the Lord as it was unveiled throughout through Christ himself, then we cannot and we will not love the Lord of the law. He makes the rules. We don't. If we detest following his ways now, how could we ever dream of an enjoyable existence in a place that exists eternally and comprehensively under the rule and reign of God? As believers who follow the Lamb wherever He goes, though we still struggle with our sinfulness in this world, we will delight in God's rule over our lives and we will submit to Him fully. We will long for Him to be the rule maker rather than ourselves. Well, we'll struggle. <laughs> we'll struggle. But our longing, our passion will be for God to be King. Finally, Not only does the consummated kingdom include God's perfected place and God's perfected rule, but also God's perfected people. The 24 elders continue their refrain to include, The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name. That statement, the nations raged, but your wrath came, it immediately resonates with the Old Testament. It's a direct allusion to Psalm 2. And and you might remember our series there, but it is there in Psalm 2 that the psalmist asks the question, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Now, that question was a response to Psalm 1, where Psalm 1 says that the wicked will perish and the righteous will stand. So the psalmist says, it don't look that way to me. Why are the nations raging? Why are the peoples plotting in vain? Why are things going so badly for your people, Lord, if that's true? It looked bleak. But here in Revelation 11, we see God's final response to the chaos of the world. God, not for one moment, was wringing his hands. He knew the answer from the moment the psalmist said, said, Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? And so we find the very response. The nations, or all those who stand opposed to God's glory, they raged... And for a long time, they rage, and today they continue to rage, but in God's time, His wrath came. For us, will come. In that day, it will be certain who belong to the Lord and who do not. There will be no pretending. The wicked will perish, and God's people will remain forever with Him in His place, enjoying His rule and blessing. In the Gospels, this is revealed in various ways. For example, the parable of the wheat and the tares. Or the parable of the sheep and the goats. God knows who belong to Him. They and they alone will escape the wrath of God because Christ absorbed that wrath on their behalf upon Calvary's cross. The sad reality is that not only 
will there be a multitude of people in the world who perish for all eternity. But the Bible is clear that there will be many among the congregations of the church who will perish as well. They are the ones that Christ described as those who, who would declare, did we not do all these things in your name? And Christ will respond, depart from me, I never knew you. And God's people are those who overcome. The Bible is clear on that. They are those whom God has marked out and placed his seal upon as described in Ephesians chapter 1 and Revelation 7, Revelation 14. There will finally be no blurring of the lines. God's perfected people will live in God's perfected place enjoying God's perfected rule and blessing for for a perfect eternity. And this will include all those who die in the Lord before his kingdom comes and all those who are alive and remain at its coming. So which group will you find yourselves among? The wheat or the tares? The sheep or the goats? The ones whom Christ knows or the ones he never knew? True faith is marked out by or not marked out by perfection or sinlessness. We know that. We understand that comprehensively. All of us will continue to struggle with sin in this life. True faith is marked out by those who continually walk in repentance, pursue repentance. So the questions that, that we need to pose are, are does, does your sin drive you to the cross? Do you see your, the ugliness of your sin within yourself and, and, and hate it and it drive you to the cross of Christ? Or do you simply find yourself justifying it like the rest of the world? Does your sin cause you to to anguish and struggle within to overcome what you know to be awful and ugly in the eyes of our great God? Or do you shirk your sin and simply find comfort and consolation in the fact that everyone's doing it? Praise the Lord that the day is coming when sin will no longer have its place in this world and we will truly be free. As Paul declares in 1 Corinthians 15, death will be swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. I want to conclude this morning with a sermon illustration that I'm borrowing verbatim from a preacher by the name of Arturo Azurdia. So these are his words, not mine. In a small London house on Brook Street, a servant sighs with resignation as he arranges a tray full of food he assumes will not be eaten. For more than a week, he has faithfully continued to wait on his employer, an eccentric composer who spends hour after hour isolated in his own room. Morning, noon, and evening, the servant delivers appealing meals to the composer and and returns later to find bowls and platters largely untouched. Once again, he steals himself to go through the same routine, muttering under his breath about how oddly temperamental musicians can be. As he swings open the door to the composer's room, the servant stops in his tracks. The startled startled composer, tears streaming down his face, turns to his servant and cries out, I did think I did see all heaven before me and the great God himself. It's rather interesting 
given the fact that just a few days earlier, the composer had been drowning in debt and living with the expectation of being thrown into debtor's prison. But two unforeseen providences changed his life. Firstly, a dear friend provided him with the lyrics on the life of Christ taken entirely from the Bible and asked the composer to put them to music. Secondly, and altogether unrelated, a charity commissioned him to compose a work for a benefit performance. Recognizing the opportunity, he quickly merged the two requests into one and immediately set himself to the task of composing an oratorio devoted to the incarnation, the crucifixion, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He grew so absorbed with his work that he rarely left his room and hardly stopped to eat. Within six days, part one was complete. Nine days later, part two was finished, and in another six, part three. He completed the orchestration for 35 instruments in another two days. All in all, 260 pages of manuscript were filled in the remarkably short time of 24 days. He had not left his house once in those three and a half weeks. One of his biographers summed up the consensus of history. Quote, Considering the immensity of the work and the short time involved, it will remain perhaps forever the greatest feat in the whole history of musical composition. His name, George Frederick Handel. The title he assigned to his new work was simply Messiah. It premiered at a charitable benefit in April of 1742, raising 400 pounds and freeing 142 men from debtor's prison. Throughout the following years, Handel himself conducted the Messiah 30 times, donating much of the revenue to various charities. In fact, one historian has written, Messiah has fed the hungry, clothed the naked, fostered the orphan. More than any other single musical production in this or any country, it has probably done more to convince thousands of mankind that there, there is a God about us than all the theological works ever written. Now, I don't know what you think or feel when you consider that one day God's perfected people will live in God's perfected place enjoying God's perfect and glorious rule and blessing. But I imagine that if you are passionately following Him, you desperately long for that day to come. And your heart will resonate with John's final words in Revelation 22. Come, Lord Jesus. Father, we love you. We simply pray as you have instructed us to, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us for our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Father, as we conclude this morning's time together, I pray that your word would reign indeed in our hearts. That you'd speak to us in these final moments. But more than that, that our response would be for your glory and for our good. And so have your way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For this-